Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome back to Michigan News from MLive. I'm Patrick Shea. A lot has happened in Michigan sports since the holiday break, so there will be plenty of that on the show today. The Wolverines are Rose Bowl champions. We'll hear from a reporter who was on the sideline for Michigan's victory over Alabama, and we'll look to Monday's national championship game against Washington. We'll also hear from Lions beat writers about the debacle in Dallas that could change the playoff picture for Detroit. But first, we'll look back at some major strides the state made last year in its climate goals, and we'll hear about embezzlement charges brought against legislative staff members. That's all ahead on Michigan News from MLive. Twenty twenty three was a big year for Michigan's climate goals. The legislature passed sweeping energy reforms and removed barriers to wind and solar projects. In November, Michigan became the first state in the Midwest to set energy storage standards and began the early stages of a trash and recycling overhaul. But one of the more unsung accomplishments of last year could have a significant impact in addressing climate change. M Live's climate reporter Sherry McWhorter is here to tell us more. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Patrick. Nice to talk to you again. You wrote a story this week looking at the state's efforts to close up orphan wells. What exactly does that mean and what's it got to do with climate change? Sure. So an orphan well is an abandoned or improperly plugged oil and gas well for which there is no solvent company or individual to hold accountable. Basically, companies go bust and there's nobody left to foot the bill. Uh, what's especially problematic is these orphan wells uh, can not only leak contaminants into groundwater, but they also leak uh, methane into the atmosphere. It's a powerful greenhouse gas. Uh, methane's molecular structure causes it to absorb far more infrared radiation from the sun than the more commonly known greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide. Scientists uh, explained that methane heats up the atmosphere as much as 30 times faster than other greenhouse gases do. Um, and, and we're not getting anything out of those methane emissions uh, from the orphan wells. There's, there's no energy generated, no products manufactured. And, and here in Michigan, we, we've got quite a few of these old leaky wells around. Um, so state environmental regulators are tackling the problem and uh, plugging the wells with industrial cement. About 200 sealed in 2023 alone. So when did the state first try to start tackling this problem, and how did 2023 compare to other years? Well, Michigan's orphan well program actually began back in the mid-1990s as an environmental cleanup program. Uh, and until this last year, state workers tended to seal between 5 and 10 orphan wells a year. Uh, but with a huge influx of federal infrastructure money, Michigan really ramped up efforts last year. They went from maybe 10 a year to doing 200 just last year. Uh, but that wouldn't have happened without a $25 million federal grant to tackle this climate problem. It sounds like that federal funding was really put to use here in Michigan, but there's still hundreds of abandoned wells that need to be sealed. Can the state replicate last year's efforts moving forward? Well, yeah, the uh, the state is working on spending that federal grant money still. And, uh, and yes, there are about 250 remaining orphan oil and gas wells that the state knows about. Uh, the Michigan Department of Environment, Great Lakes, and Energy wants to continue this work, too. 
Um, the agency filed paperwork with the U.S. Department of Interior that indicated the state intends to apply for another $5.8 million to continue the orphan well plugging program. Uh, even that is a significant increase over the typical $1 million annual allocation from the federal government for this work. And, and really, this effort is a good thing. You know, climate scientists say fixing this type of leaky infrastructure from the oil and gas industry is the low-hanging fruit of greenhouse gas emissions reductions, especially because we don't need old, leaky, unproductive oil wells like we still need power plants or transportation, which are big emissions generators. Well, plugging orphan wells is just one of many ways Michigan made strides last year towards meeting its climate goals. You can get the latest on those efforts by reading Sherry McWhorter's reporting on MLive.com. Sherry, thanks for your time. It's always great to talk to you, Patrick. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We took a break on this show for a couple weeks around the holidays, and just as we did, some big news broke from the Attorney General's office. Dana Nessel announced embezzlement charges against two former legislative staffers. MLive's senior political reporter Simon Schuster was at the arraignment on Wednesday and joins us now. Hi, Simon. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Patrick. Thanks for being here. So, Attorney General Dana Nessel says she became aware of this alleged embezzlement while investigating former House Speaker Lee Chatfield. Who are the staffers involved and what specifically are they being accused of? Yeah, so the two uh, folks that we're talking about here are Anne and Rob Menard. Uh, these folks no longer work in the legislature, but when Lee Chatfield was House Speaker between 2019 and 2020, Rob Menard acted as his chief of staff and Anne Menard was the House Republican Caucus's director of external affairs. These were uh, senior positions, some of the highest in the legislature, and it gave them unprecedented access to Lee Chatfield, who had been a close friend and a close political associate of the two for years. So uh, myself and other reporters, we had been reporting on some of the uh, close financial and professional ties between the Menards and Chatfield for years. Back in December 2020, I noted that their political consulting firm, Victor Strategies, had made more than $1.1 million while Chatfield was in the legislature, the majority of it while he was speaker. Now, uh, oftentimes there were discrepancies in some of these financial transactions, things that were looked erroneous or off in some of my reporting. But it wasn't until uh, Lee Chatfield's sister-in-law accused him of longstanding sexual abuse that state investigators had probable cause to come in and search the Menard's home. And from there, there was a widening and ongoing investigation into potential financial improprieties. Uh, Lee Chatfield himself has been accused of running a quote-unquote criminal enterprise by Dana Nessel. And that is the primary charge that the Menards are facing, of running a criminal enterprise. And when accepting uh, some of these payments from their many clients while they worked in the legislature, uh, they would do things like sort of double bill or uh, re have, it, have their company, for example, reimburse uh, a payment that they made and then pocket the money individually. And we have affidavits in courts that show that they were using some of the money that they pocketed uh, for luxury products and spending sprees uh, on essentially money that they didn't have any right to receive themselves. Now, Nessel pointed to a key issue in the state legislature that she says played a role in allowing the alleged embezzlement to happen. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So when we look at the campaign finance reporting that we that had been done in, in prior years, um, we were able to see some of these irregularities, uh, numbers that didn't necessarily match up or essentially um, perhaps 
uh, services that were being paid for where the Menards, for example, would take an 85% premium, uh, you know, spend $130,000 or receive $130,000 rather uh, to run Facebook ads and then only spend $20,000 running those ads. Um, the issue here is that campaign finance uh, laws, according to Dana Nessel, are extraordinarily weak in Michigan. Uh, because none of this was reported, there isn't exactly direct evidence of it occurring. Uh, investigators needed probable cause to go in and look for these financial improprieties in order to uncover them. And it was only through the uh, sexual assault accusations that uh, the investigation was able to move in this direction. Simon, as you mentioned, this all came to light while investigating former House Speaker Lee Chatfield. What's the status of that broader investigation and what's that all about? Yeah, so this was uh, part of the revelatory reporting that some of my colleagues in the Capitol Press Corps first engaged in, and they found that uh, a nonprofit fund that was managed by the Menards uh, for the benefit of Lee Chatfield politically uh, had raised uh, prodigious amounts of money, close to a million dollars. And in the process, this is a nonprofit account that often people refer to as dark money in our political system, that it had spent uh, nearly $150,000 in 2020 on uh, entertainment and travel uh, for elected officials. Um, because of our uh, loose campaign finance laws, because of the limited nonprofit reporting required, we don't know exactly what this money was spent on. But reporting from myself and others showed that he traveled extensively and lived uh, something of an extravagant lifestyle uh, for uh, relative to a lawmaker from uh, nor- the northern lower peninsula from Levering uh, had enjoyed prior to being in elected office. Um, we don't know who exactly donated to these accounts or precisely how that money was spent, but that investigation remains ongoing. And Dana Nessel has said previously, even back in 2022, that uh, he suspected of running a criminal enterprise similar to what the Menards have been charged with. And finally, what's next for these embezzlement charges? And I guess what's the next court date on your calendar, Simon? Sure. It's important to note that the Menards have both uh, stood mute in response, entered pleas of uh, not guilty. uh, uh, Their attorneys, I should say, entered pleas of not guilty on their behalf in court earlier this week. Uh, And the court is moving forward with later this month a probable cause conference and a preliminary exam, and that'll happen on January 19th and 25th, respectively, of course. But that's subject to change, as many things are in our legal system. Simon Schuster is a senior political reporter with MLive. You can read his continued coverage of these embezzlement charges against former legislative staffers at MLive.com slash politics. Simon, thanks for joining us. The Michigan Wolverines are Rose Bowl champions after a thrilling New Year's Day game against the Alabama Crimson Tide. It was Michigan's first bowl victory since 2016 and gives the Wolverines a chance to win their first national championship since 1997. Wolverines beat reporter Andrew Kahn was in Pasadena on Monday. He joins us now with more from the Rose Bowl and a look ahead to the upcoming national championship game in Houston. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. So this game went down to the wire. It all came down to a fourth and goal stop from the Wolverines defense in overtime. I understand you were on the sideline. So paint a picture for us. What were the scenes like after Michigan's Rose Bowl victory? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take you back even a little bit to, to just the end of the game. Um, yeah, they did. They did let me um, on the sideline. That's not something that I can do at Michigan Stadium during the season. So I took advantage and it's a wild scene. I will say the players who are not in the game, you know, who are, you know, maybe some of the walk-ons or, you know, third stringers or whatever are for the most part behaving a lot like 
you know, most of the fans at home, I imagine many of our listeners, they are just kind of living and dying with every play, uh, you know, cheering. And then, you know, the players on the field, I'm always struck by their remarkable poise in those situations because it's just the stakes are so high. Uh, you know, the atmosphere is, is so intense and loud. Um, and yet you see plays like that Roman Wilson catch, um, you know, on, on a big game to get Michigan deep in Alabama territory, then his touchdown catch and Blake Corum's run in overtime uh, for the game winning score. So, um, yeah, there was, it was just, and then the defense. So there's just so much to like, but then yeah, immediately after the game is it was jubilation. I mean, you might've thought that they had had won it all. And you know, they, obviously this was, this was a huge hurdle uh, to clear beating an Alabama program that had been so good in this spot, um, overcoming their, you know, their previous losses in, in this spot for Michigan. So um, yeah, it was, it was a big kind of sigh of relief and uh, a lot of players with, with roses in their mouth, you know, kind of, imitating the the Charles Woodson iconic photo from from back in 1997 um so yeah they they were they were thrilled but it didn't take long for them to s- flip the switch to all right we still got one more game to win to finish the job definitely and we'll get to that soon the odds were pretty even in this game and that's how it played out as well from your perspective what were the keys to Michigan's victory and how were they able to stifle an Alabama side that's been on a great run late in the regular season yeah, Patrick, I love when, you know, we hype these games up so much, especially one like this, for it to actually meet or even exceed that hype is is rare, but this one did. Uh, and I think the the reason, let's let's look at kind of, you know, both sides of the ball. Offensively, Michigan was balanced with with running the ball and passing the ball. They had zero turnovers. This was their formula for success all season, and they followed it. Was JJ McCarthy outstanding? You know, did he have the game of his life like some uh, national experts claimed he would need to in order for Michigan to win? No, he didn't. But he played mistake free football despite a uh, first throw that was that could have gone the other way. But, um, you know, and he, and he made some big plays, you know, with his arms and legs late when it really counted. And the defense had six sacks. Uh, I mean, this was this was something that maybe was a little unexpected uh, based on what you know we knew about Alabama's offensive line, Michigan won this game in the trenches. Uh, their offensive line allowed just one sack and you know they were able to move the ball, like I said, on the ground as well. And then, yeah, the defense coming up with with pressure on, on Jalen Milrow all night and, and forcing one turnover. Um, Alabama doesn't really get bullied uh, up front like that by too many teams, but Michigan was able to do it to them. Moving on to this coming Monday, you're headed to Houston to cover the national championship game against the Washington Huskies. Washington has an elite quarterback in Michael Penix Jr., and some top-rated receivers as well. Michigan has the number one ranked defense in the country. What will they have to get right on Monday, and how is this a different challenge than the Alabama game? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I think you laid it out pretty well. This is the best passing offense in the country against one of the best passing defenses and, and the top defense overall uh, in football. So uh, against Alabama, uh, their quarterback was a runner first. Um, Michael Penix Jr., he's all arm, and he, he will stress their secondary um, in, in ways that really no other quarterback has uh, against Michigan this year. They faced, you know, some decent ones. And Ohio State obviously had some some really good receivers and a, and a very good quarterback. Um, and, you know, Michigan held up pretty well against them. But, you know, this is the, the Heisman runner-up um, with just, you know, gaudy numbers all season. Uh, he beat Michigan earlier in his career. This guy is a six-year player. Um, he played four seasons at Indiana before transferring to Washington. Um, had a breakout year last year and has, has been 
even better this year. And like you said, they've got some some really good receivers too. Um, the great neutralizer for any you know good passing attack is a pass rush. And, you know, Michigan showed that ability against Alabama. And I think, um, you know, that it, it would benefit them to, you know, to do that again on, on Monday. Um, the other side of the ball, I think the thought at least is that Michigan should be able to move the ball, you know, more easily than it has in, in weeks, really, uh, you know, Alabama's defense, very good. Iowa's very good in the Big Ten Championship. Ohio State before that, uh, you know, even Maryland and, and Penn State, these are all defenses ranked pretty high and, and you know, in the country. So, um, you know, I, I think I think Michigan should be able to run the ball, especially a little better than, than they had in the past. Um, what do they have to clean up? Special teams. Uh, you know, <laughs> that first punt of the game that Michigan receives is there going to be a lot of, uh, you know, nerves, uh, you know, among Michigan fans, at least for how that's going to be handled. Now the game is indoors. So I think that that's a big help. Um, you know, there was a reason that, you know, Michigan deployed its, its freshman uh, Samaj Morgan for the first time against Iowa because that game was indoors. So you don't have to worry about wind or the sun. Uh, there's just, you know, a lot of, a lot of those factors that make punt returning difficult don't come into play in, in a dome. Um, and that's what NRG stadium is in Houston, the home of the, the NFL's Texans. So, uh, yeah, punt returns. Uh, their kicking operation was a little shaky. They they weren't able to uh, get the snap down for an extra point. They missed a field goal. Um, even that extra point uh, late, you know, I was I was standing right there. The snap wasn't great. Um, but yeah, so clean those things up. JJ McCarthy, I think, needs to be very good again. I don't think he needs to be, you know, Superman. He just needs to, you know, do what he's done most of the season, which is play, you know, turnover free football and, 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 you know, make some big plays with his, his arm and his legs. Uh, Michigan is a, you know, moderate favorite in this game, but I mean, two 14 and 0 teams, this is, you know, as good as it gets for, for a national championship. Definitely a lot of potential for another great game. That's Monday at 7:30 PM in Houston, Texas. Andrew Kahn covers university of Michigan athletics for M live. You can hear more of his analysis on the Wolverine confidential podcast. You can also read his coverage before, during, and after the big game at mlive.com slash wolverines. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. The Detroit Lions headed to Dallas last Saturday, having already clinched their first division title in 30 years. But there was still a lot to play for with playoff seating on the line, and a controversial call in the final seconds of the game ended up being the difference. MLive Lions reporters Kyle Mikey and Ben Raven join us now to break down this key moment. Hey guys. Patrick, it's good to be here. Yeah, good to see you, man. So I'm sure some of our listeners out there either didn't see the game or maybe didn't understand what they were seeing at the end. <laughs> I fall in the latter camp. So let's briefly cover the buildup to that fateful play. How did the Lions find themselves with this opportunity to win it at the death? Well, they got the ball back with a minute 41 left in Dallas, and they were down by seven points. And their offense had been struggling for <clears throat> several quarters at that point. Um, but they were able to drive the length of the field pretty seamlessly. Jared Goff hit six straight passes, the last of which was to Amon Ross St. Brown, who scored a three-yard touchdown with 23 seconds left. That brought the Lions within one, and they could have kicked the uh, extra point to tie the game and force overtime. But Dan Campbell, the head coach, had already told his team 
that they were going to go for the win. And that kind of fits with his nature. He's an aggressive coach. Uh, the Cowboys have been pretty explosive offensively. Um, also, I think he was uninterested in playing overtime with uh, the playoffs looming in, in just a week uh, and the physical toll that an extra period might take. So they lined up for the, the two-point conversion, which would give them the win with a conversion. So it is kind of an arcane rule. Patrick. Uh, so it's understandable if you didn't quite follow along. I think a lot of people were in the same boat. But basically what happens is offensive linemen are not allowed to catch passes um, unless they report as eligible to the to the officials. Um, and they do that a lot with Dan Skipper, their sixth offensive lineman who plays a lot in what they call jumbo packages. And the Lions used one of those packages on the two-point play. And what they did was they sent Dan Skipper toward the official as if he was going to report, trying to confuse the Dallas defense. But he didn't report. He didn't say anything to the official. He didn't do the physical gesture that the, that players use to report as eligible, which is wiping the front numbers. Meanwhile, Taylor Decker, the left tackle, um, a different offensive lineman, did report as eligible. You can see it on film, too. He walks up to the official, like, four or five feet away from him. You can see him talk to the official. And Taylor Decker said later that he was reporting. He said, sir, I'm eligible while wiping the front numbers, the physical gesture. And the official never looked at Taylor Decker, never acknowledged him. He was looking at Dan Skipper the whole time, the other offensive lineman who usually reports as eligible. And Dan Skipper was doing a hand signal uh, to the offense saying basically what personnel package they were going to be in for the play. The official, I, I interpret that as mistaking Dan Skipper's physical gestures to the offense for what play they were going to be in as reporting is eligible, even though the the physical gesture is different. Uh, and in a very loud stadium, it sold out. Players and coaches couldn't hear anything. The official announced Dan Skipper as eligible, the, the incorrect player, but nobody on the field knew that because it was so loud. Uh, they they ran the play. It was successful to Taylor Decker. He catches a pass, raises his hands in the air, the longest tenured player in Detroit, um, finishes the game with the ball in his hands and sends the, line, the Lions back home uh, with a shot at the number two seed. Of course, the officials mistook which offensive lineman could catch the pass. Uh, they threw a flag uh, because of the, you know it, it was a uh, they viewed a different offensive lineman as being eligible on the play, um, and Dan. Campbell, who had told the officials before the game, this is what we're going to do. Here's the play. He literally had it on a piece of paper for the officials, um, went ballistic, uh, and the rest is history at this point. The Lions lost the game, uh, and it, a, a huge controversy in the NFL world has uh, ensued. You guys recorded a post-game episode of the Dungeon of Doom podcast from Dallas after the game, and you were pretty frustrated with the way it ended. The players you spoke with said, like you were just saying, they did everything by the books, and this was an officiating error. But now, a week later, what's the reaction been like to this call outside of Michigan? Uh, well, the NFL has kind of doubled down on its stance that, you know, Skipper Skipper's hand motion calling for the jumbo package was actually him declaring as eligible. And, you know, I mean, Brad Allen, they had a ref doubled down on it after the game. The NFL is sticking to their guys. I mean, not completely, taking, reportedly taking them off the postseason rotation and stuff like that, but, I mean... We're talking about it a week later. The players and the coaches have been ready to put this behind. I mean, you thought Dan Campbell was ticked off on Saturday when he had to face those questions again on Monday afternoon back here in Allen Park. He was ready to be done. All that stuff is in the hands of team president Rod Wood at this point. The players have moved past it. But, yeah, it's just uh, – I mean, shoot, I passed a Decker-reported billboard on my way into work today. <laughs> so I think it's got some far-reaching emotional impact and stuff, you know, especially since it's the Lions back in Dallas with a lot of history there and yellow flags that came in late with weird explanations. <laughs>
So there's still one game left to play in the regular season, but the Lions are looking locked in for that three seed. Well, it could have been better if things had gone differently in Dallas. That still means the Lions will host the first ever playoff game in Ford Field history. There are still a lot of possibilities for who they'll face in that game, but what matchup would you guys be most excited about? So they're probably going to be the three seed uh, in the NFC and, and host that game, as you said, Patrick. They do have a possibility to move up to number two um, if a couple other teams lose. It's kind of a um, a long shot scenario. So you're correct. The, the the three seed is probably in hand, which means they'll play the number six seed, which right now is, of all teams, the Los Angeles Rams. <laughs> and I think I speak for Ben. I think I speak for any any anyone who's just into compelling storylines that that's, that's the matchup we'd love to see. Um, the, the the Rams quarterback is none other than Matthew Stafford, um, who spent all those years in Detroit, a uh, couple of playoff appearances, but no division championships, no playoff wins, no home playoff games. And now he, Matthew Stafford's <laughs> first ever playoff game at Ford Field could come against the Lions facing off against Jared Goff, the, the former Rams quarterback that the Rams ba- basically gave up on. There, there was some beef with the head coach, Sean McVay. There was a falling out. It wasn't exactly a... You know, a great send off for Jared Goff in in LA. He actually demanded an exit meeting after the trade because he wanted to hear what he did wrong. There's there's hard there's hard feelings there, Patrick, between Goff and the Rams, and there's no hard feelings between Stafford and the Lions. But after all those years, it's a polarizing quarterback here, and people disagreeing over how good he was and how much of the team's failures was his fault. And and now he's coming back to Detroit to try to end the Lions' best season in forever. Ben Raven and Kyle Mikey are on M Live's Detroit Lions beat. You can hear more of their analysis by subscribing to the Dungeon of Doom podcast. You can also read all of their work at mlive.com lions. The Lions will wrap up the regular season on Sunday against the Minnesota Vikings. That's a 1 p.m. kickoff in Detroit. After that, you can catch the Red Wings as they take on the Anaheim Ducks in California at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And at the same time, the Pistons will be in Colorado to play the Denver Nuggets. The Pistons did snap their losing streak last weekend, but not before breaking an all-time NBA record of 28 consecutive losses in a season. In college hoops, Michigan State will play Northwestern Sunday at 7.30 p.m., and before that, the Wolverines will face Penn State Sunday at noon. But of course, the big game for Wolverines fans is Monday, when Michigan faces Washington in the College Football National Championship. Kickoff is Monday at 7.30 p.m. Thanks again for listening to Michigan News from MLive. I'm Patrick Shea. Have a great weekend and a great start to 2024.